Welcome to the Modern Law Library. I'm Julianne Hill, your guest host. I'm a legal affairs writer at the ABA Journal. Today, I'm joined by Tara Stringfellow. She's a former attorney and now the author of the novel Memphis. It's a story about three generations of Black women living in their family home, and the story spans seven decades. Hi, Tara. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Oh, no problem. I really enjoyed this read, and I'm looking forward to talking to you about it. I want to talk to you today about your career and your book. So you were a lawyer. Tell me about the path to law. How did you decide, and when did you decide, that law was the thing for you? My uh, first book of poetry didn't sell. That's it. (laughs) I needed to eat. I like um, designer shoes and good meals. And I said, well, what's a career I can do that I could use my writing know-how? And the law came to mind. I was also, um, right out of college, I was a trader at a hedge fund. And the CEO and one of the analysts both went to Harvard Law. So I said, well, with a law career, I could do just about anything. I, I got a recommendation from one of them and I headed on to law school. It was the middle of the recession. Nobody was hiring. I said, well, let me go to school for a few years so then at least I can eat. So it was a struggling artist's decision to go to law school. But I thought, hey, if Grisham can do it, (laughs) this should be a walk in the park. (laughs) I'm sure it was so easy, right? Easiest thing ever. Best job I've ever had. (laughs) No, no, no. So when did it become clear that you still needed to write, that you were able to write and wanted to go back to school? Well, I I don't know if want (laughs) is the correct verb usage there. I think had, (laughs) must, was hungry (laughs) are are better usages of a a term there. But um, no, I, I felt like I had to, but I felt very much prepared to go. You know, Northwestern, I went uh, for my undergraduate in English literature and African-American studies I was well-versed just being an African-American body in America about constitutional and civil rights law. Um, I'm the first attorney in my family. So I took it very seriously. I was always prepared for class, uh, nerdy in that way. My worst fear would be to be called on, Ms. Shrinkfellow, brief the case and not have an answer. So that was that was always at the forefront. I I took it very seriously as a career, as a profession, as a calling. And when did you decide to head back toward the writing? Oh, always. You know, I was born a poet. I say that often. I've had various careers in my life just so that I'm able to fund my dream of writing, sitting down and writing a good sonnet with a good cup of coffee and a menthol cigarette. There's nothing to me in the world better <laughs> than that. Um, so I've, I've had other, you know, I was a teacher even after I was an attorney, um, because it gave me, it allowed me to have summers off to write this novel. I would do just about anything. (laughs) I was, I'll be a NASA scientist if it allowed me to have summers off to write. But the legal career in, in law school did help me formulate my writing. I think it made me a stronger, better writer. I had a brilliant professor I forget his name because it's just been years, but he was a a writing professor at Chicago Kent at my law school. And Chicago Kent is a wonderful little law school because we require two years of legal writing rather than just the one. So that's why I went. 
I really wanted to be a strong legal writer. And I think it's made me um, a strong novelist. While you were practicing, were you working on this novel or did that come later? I was practicing, um, I was doing family law, real estate law, telecommunications law in Chicago. I was married. I was living up the high life. I, I had meals, good meals and some designer shoes. And I was terribly, terribly unhappy. I hated my life. So I wrote my own divorce and I gave up the penthouse. I sold the shoes for money, sold the wedding dress, sold the ring and became objectively poor. I moved to Edgewater, a little neighborhood in Chicago. I went back to Northwestern for my MFA. I did it at night. I was also working as an attorney. Uh, They didn't like that. They didn't like that I was going back to school for poetry of all things. So they kind of ousted me of the law firm. And I found myself unemployed, you know, going to school at night to pursue a dream. It was very freeing. I said, oh, I don't have to work 70 hour weeks anymore. Like, oh, I can take time to study and to write. And I would get little, little side gigs. I would get little secretarial positions that would allow me to sit at a desk and really just write this novel, like on the slide and and do, do their work, quote unquote, but really just get something very menial, very easy to do. That'll give me some income so I can get dollar tacos and a bottle of yellowtail and push this book out. (laughs) And so it was very, it was very freeing. I was at the most poor I've ever been in my life. I was newly single, you know, newly divorced, having written my own, didn't ask for a penny in the divorce, didn't ask for any maintenance because I wanted to say that I did it on my own. I didn't want him to ever look back and say that and see this novel and say, oh, I helped with that. You know, so I forgave, um, I gave up some legal rights and chose poverty just to reinvent myself in this and and pursue the American dream in a Black female way. Excellent. We're going to take a quick break now to hear a word from our sponsor. And when we return, I'll ask Tara about her background and how it shaped her book. Delegate out those tasks that take up your time. Staffy can help you with your legal, administrative, marketing, and even client-facing workload. Hiring Staffy's top-notch bilingual virtual staff means Staffy does the recruiting, hiring, and training for you. Then, if you need a change, Staffy handles it. You get to concentrate on your strategic work. Schedule a free consultation at staffy.cc. That's S-T-A-F-I dot C-C and get $500 off with code HAPPY24. Filing court documents, serving legal papers, collecting electronic signatures, all critical parts of the litigation process, yet ones that are time-consuming and error-prone. But what if you could do more straight from your case or document management software? InfoTrack automates data entry, document selection, tracking, and information syncing across all these core tasks and more by integrating with your core systems, like Clio, Smokeball, Leap, MyCase, and others. Spend more time on substantive legal work and less time on busy work. Learn how simple it can be at infotrack.com simple. Welcome back to this episode of the Modern Law Library. I'm here with Tara Stringfellow, the author 
of Memphis. One of the characters, Joan, I believe, floats the idea very quickly of becoming a lawyer, even though her mom wants her to be a doctor. Are we hearing anything that you encountered from your family? Oh, yes, of course. I mean, I don't know of a soul on this earth whose parents don't want them to be a doctor or an attorney. I had grown up hearing that uh, from my mother, mostly, too, my whole life. Like, you would be a good attorney. You should go to law school. But I was always rebelling against that. You know, I wanted to write haiku and tonka and sonnets and, you know, iambic pentameter. And, and those things excited me, not so much being in a courtroom. But it is rather ironic that I ended up being an attorney throughout all of the many years of rebelling against my mother's advice. I went ahead and went to law school. But um, I'm glad I did it. So... It sounds like a little bit of your own experience has shaped this book. And so let's talk about the grandfather character, Myron. In your letter from the author on the book's origin story, you wrote that you knew your own grandfather's background as the first Black detective in Memphis, but you didn't know why his body was pulled from the Mississippi River. Can you talk a bit about how your lawyerly research skills helped develop the character Myron in the book based on your own family history? Yeah. So we had always known, I'd always known that my grandfather had been killed. We believe that he's been lynched by the Memphis police department. I always knew that growing up. Like my, my mother grew up without a father. I grew up without a grandfather. That's a huge hole in a young person's life. So I always knew about that, but during doing research for this novel, I did not know. I discovered that he was a world war II veteran. And that he was in, you know, the second battle of the bulge that in April of 1945, him and his 183rd combat battalion rolled into a children's camp called Buchenwald and liberated the children there. One of which was Elie Wiesel, the Nobel Prize laureate, the novelist who wrote Night. So the fact that my grandfather was in the same room as a Nobel Prize winning laureate at the one of probably the darkest and probably brightest day of his life, him getting liberated. He said that these black soldiers came through the door and he called them black angels. And that's um and my grandfather had a part in that. And there's not a single monument to him in the South, but there we see monuments of of Lee. And Nathan Bedford Forrest, the organizer of the Ku Klux Klan, I have to drive by monuments of Jefferson Davis. But no, not a soul in Memphis knew about my grandfather and what he had done for this country. So I decided to write a novel about him. I said, this will be our monument. Why not? If this world of America is going to choose to ignore the sacrifices of Black veterans, I can do something about it. Tell me about how your writing professor, Reg Gibbons, who we both know, um, helped point you to Ancestry.com and how that came into play into your research. I emailed Reg this morning. Isn't he just the best person on earth? Oh my goodness. He's the one, he's the person who, who um, I had written a poem for his poetry workshop. He pushed that poem back to me. Uh, after everybody had made their criticisms, you know, pushed it back on one of those long tables and said this, this right here should be a novel. Wow. 
And is that the seed of this story? That's how Memphis was born. I started writing it the next, like, it was, it was like right before Christmas break. And so I came down to Memphis for Christmas and they sat at my uh, kitchen table and started writing it because of Reg. But he also told me, he gave me some also some great advice. He told me uh, to go on Ancestry because when you are a student at Northwestern, you get a free Ancestry account. So that's how I was oh, able no. to discover that my grandfather was in the 183rd Engineer Combat Battalion in all Negro unit and that he was at certain battles of World War II. And I found photographs and it's, it, it was just an amazing experience to be able to call my mother and tell her she had no idea that her father was a, a World War II hero. So I think that that was a moment for us as a family. Getting the book deal was a moment, but I think that calling my mom to tell her what her daddy had done, that was something. Absolutely. Are other members of your family, can you see traits in your characters that stem from some of your other family members? Yes. Like my siblings are are Maya. I have sisters. They're funny. <laughs> we tease each other, you know, um, that was kind of easy to, to write. I have aunties who are just fabulous and gorgeous and, and hilarious and you know, we'll chain smoke and <laughs> we'll tell you about yourself real quick. My grandma um, in Memphis would uh, do hair out of her basement. So, uh, yeah, my grandfather in Chicago would cut hair out of his kitchen. So I was always I grew up in black barber shops, black beauty salons. I grew up in Chicago and Memphis. Parts of the book were very easy to write because I could just remember a Thanksgiving or a Christmas where somebody said something absolutely hilarious <laughs> and you'll remember it for the rest of your life. That's beautiful. I've written a bit about my own family and have found that there are pros and cons to it. How about you? Mm, I think, you know, my family, as far as a con, I think my family realize that even if it's based on them, it is not them. And I have an artistic voice, a narrative voice that is separate from even myself, Tara. And I don't think many people realize that. Like, even when you write a poem, it's not you writing the poem. Sometimes it's the narrative voice dictating the poem. So I can kind of remove myself from family drama in that way. And, I, and my family also know that I honor them with my writing. That even when I write about tragic terrible things that have happened to us, I'm trying to search for the beauty in it. And so, and I, I don't, I don't believe I've ever negatively written like something about my family members. I might've written something truthful that was then hurtful, but trying to tear down uh, folk in my writing, uh, I don't think I would ever do. I don't do that to my villains. So I definitely wouldn't do it to my family members. I got to see them the next Christmas or Thanksgiving. <laughs> These people got to right. cook for me. They got to they gotta <laughs> give me shelter and cook for me when I come over. So I try to be nice to these people. <laughs> this seems like a good place to take a quick break and hear a word from our sponsor. And when we return, I'll ask Tara about the book's writing style and the power of women. Welcome back to the Modern Law Library. I'm talking with Tara Stringfellow the author of the novel Memphis. To geek out a little bit, the novel's braided with each person's point of view emphasized in separate chapters and the timeline shifts 
with each chapter. Why do this? Why tell the story in that way? I wanted to see if I could. This was my debut novel. I had never written a piece of fiction before in my life. I'd only written poems. I wanted to see if I could. It was a challenge for me as a writer. I wanted to write a great American novel that was small, just like Great Gatsby, but told through many points of view, like as Faulkner's As I Lay Down. I wanted to see if I could hang with the big boys, sit at the big boys table with my fork and my knife and see if I would get served some food. Like, honestly, that's why I wanted to see if I could. And I wanted to play with point of view. I wanted to see if I could do first person, if I could do a close third. You know, I wanted to see if I could do that as a writer, if I was skilled enough, if I was good enough. I think I pulled it off. I hope I did. I wrote a book. I don't know. I just wanted, it was an exercise for, you know, us writers, especially going to Northwestern, we would have so many writing exercises and then the professor would say, okay, we'll write it from the point of view of a dog in the corner of the room. Like you'd have to throw everything away and rewrite it from a completely different point of view. So I was used to doing that and I wanted to see if I could do it professionally. I think it, it gives the book flavor. I do. Definitely. Definitely. Did your, you talked about how at Kent, you had to do two years of legal writing. Did any of that writing training as a lawyer help your own craft in this storytelling? Of course. The organization, making an argument. Making an argument in legal writing is the same as making an argument in prose or even in verse. You know, you have your facts, you have your rule of law, which would be the form or the structure of the sonnet or whatever you're writing. And then your argument would be your theme or what you want the audience to feel or emote at that certain point. And so you have to back that up with evidence, with facts. And so I would do that for every chapter, the structure of a legal brief almost. And you can make poetic flourishes here and there. Uh, You can play with timelines and flashbacks and points of view. But at the end of the day, you have to make a damn good argument and get up there and be able to back it up with law, with or rules, with form, and with uh, factual evidence. Otherwise, people have- are, are going to read you. Basically, the rubric for, I think, any um, beautiful American body of writing, right? Right. Right. I had a, a writing professor who said, all writing is sharpening a pencil. And it doesn't matter if you're writing your grandma or if you're writing an angry email to somebody, it's all practicing. So um, it sounds like the work in law school did, did in fact, inform what, what your creative writing is doing. Yes, I think so. And then being able to research, really helpful. Westlaw, LexisNexis, God bless them. And I was studying on those when it was like, before it was just a Google search. Like you had to actually know how to search. It was horrible. I hope they've changed these databases to make it more user-friendly. While you have male characters in this book, but none of them merit their own chapters. Why is that? Mm, There were male chapters in earlier drafts, but I just think, how can I say this? I think it's an I don't think there had been a body of of literature, of American literature, in which most of the characters, all of the main major characters were Black women. 
set in the South, not since Alice Walker's The Color Purple. And that was written in 1972, 1974, something like that. And so I really Mm -hmm. wanted to write a modern color purple. I wanted to write about a little black girl in the South and her sister and the love of her, you know, and how, and I see Shug Avery in Auntie August all the time. And so I really wanted to write a book, a novel in which the main focus was on black women. I think we deserved that. I think I was writing at a time too politically in which, you know, this country, we really, us black women really needed a nice gift. And so for that reason, I didn't make male characters. There have been, how many books have we written about men? They can, they can sit down for a moment, just a little bit, and give us some time to shine. The story as it's written, for me, it really emphasizes the power of women in the story, in life in the city that is often overlooked. We're always telling the stories of men and you're telling the story of the women who made their own life uh, very often without these men. And they made a good life and raised their children. Yes. I mean, we've been doing that for generations. We've been doing that for centuries in this country. Black women especially have, and they've been doing it for free, mostly on free labor, You know, I talk about, there's an excerpt from a Toni Morrison article at the beginning of Memphis, and it talks about how the Black women had nothing to fall back on. Not white womanhood, not ladyhood, not Black men, not nothing. And out of the profound desolation of her despair, she may have very well reinvented herself. And so I thought about that quotation often when I was writing Memphis, like, what is the story of the older Black woman you see on the L train that you don't talk to, and why don't you talk to her? You know, what? why don't you go home one Thanksgiving and ask your auntie about her life? Like, what was it like coming up in the South in, in Jim Crow segregation? You know, these people are only a generation removed from us. You know, my mother grew up, lost her father to racism. That's not, that's not like 50 years. You see what I'm saying? It's like in, in today, in 2023, I don't have a grandfather. That's, that's a legacy of, of racism, of Jim Crow and of slavery that has been passed down throughout the generations. And I just wanted to write a novel that had a frank conversation about that. And I don't, I didn't think um, the novels out there were doing that. And so I wanted I wanted, even though politics is never really discussed in the book ever, I wanted very much for Memphis to be a political book. It was written at a time Trump had just called Baltimore, forgive my French, a shit city. He was talking about Black American cities on the water, you know, and not being good enough, I guess, because they're Black and poor, something like that. And, you know, I see a lot of similarities with Memphis, Detroit, Memphis, Baltimore, Memphis, Atlanta, Memphis and Oakland. And so even if you're not Southern or not from Memphis, I think this book connects to a lot of Black women in America who are told every day that our lives don't matter. They very much do and have and have built this country. (laughs) Let me just say that we've built it. We've made it. If anything, Black women have always made this country great. 
As for the business of being an author, do you feel that being an attorney helped you in dealing with publishers and agents in a way that maybe somebody else who strictly has been a poet or a, a writer doesn't have? Oh, yeah. there was. I was talking to my agent not too long ago. We were talking about some contract I have. And she said, oh, well, let me go back and look. And I was like, no, it's on page this. And it says this. This is a clause I remember. <laughs> she just looked at me like, what? <laughs> like, how do you? I said, because it's an option clause. You're going to, it's the same language. You're going to remember it, but I bang, bada boom. And so it's helpful to call up terms of my contracts. I have many. I didn't think I'd have so many, but you do. You have separate contracts for every translation. Memphis has been translated into German, French, Portuguese, and I have a UK contract. You know, if you want to sell movie rights, those are their contracts that come with that. And so, yes, it's been very helpful. The law, going to law school has been helpful in, in, in a lot of ways in my life. I don't think anyone can pull the wool over my eyes. You know, I don't think anyone can really cheat me. I, I read, <laughs> I read the terms. I understand what they mean. I, if I don't, I ask a question, I get it answered. My agency and also Penguin Random House have a brilliant team of attorneys um, that go through the editorial process with me. All of my books have been legally vetted for accuracy details. I would be daunted if I didn't have the legal career and having to do that just as a writer, getting on a conference call with <laughs> general counsel of Penguin Random House. Like, did you lie here or is this <laughs> A factual statement. So, um, yeah, it's it's but that part of uh, is 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 rather fun for me because I get to use my I get to put my attorney hat on. Your book also has two other things that I thought were fun for the reader, maybe not as fun as contracts, but um, your book has a playlist, a song for each chapter and a recipe. And tell tell me about how those came to be. Those uh, my team reached out to me to do that for the book club. And so I said, oh, that's such a great idea. And so I love, I love making, um, I grew up in the 80s, so I love making a mixtape for folk. <laughs> you know, it's like the most intimate, romantic thing you can do. And so I thought that would be a good gift to readers. They can just listen in each chapter. I tried to like match the song kind of to the theme or the emotion of each chapter of uh, the vibe. And uh, it's just a good way to get music out, too. I put some artists that maybe folk haven't heard or aren't that very, like, mainstream to hopefully get them more Spotify listens and viewers and subscribers. So, you know, I'm from Memphis. I'm always going <laughs> to—I'm always going to get excited about music. <laughs> like, that's, that's all we do here. And then what else did I do for the book club? I did the playlist and I did what else you said? A recipe. Oh, yes. My team wanted me to put out more recipes, but my mama said no. She said, mm -mm, we're not giving those recipes out to them white folk we don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so what's next for you? Is there another novel? Am I looking for a book of poetry, a couple of contracts? What's next in your writing career? Yeah, so um, blessedly, I am honored. I have a book of poetry that'll be out with uh, Dial Press with Penguin Random House, and it comes out this June, June 2024. I just sent it in last Monday. Congratulations. That's huge. Yes. We're picking out covers right now. 
it's like the most exciting. I think the most exciting part of a book process is when you finish, you're done and you can just pick out artwork and get blurbs for it. So that'll be exciting to do this summer. And then I'm also, of course, working on the second novel, follow up to Memphis. Is it the same characters? Oh, I'm I, no, and I don't want to say, <laughs> but also okay. no, but no, no, no. I don't like sequels. Americans are fascinated by sequels. There's like 10 Jurassic Parks now. I don't understand it. The first one was great. <laughs> I'm not saying that this one was complete. I was just asking. I guess my last question is, what advice you have for attorneys who have a book in them? What should they do? The best advice I've ever been given for writing is sit down and write. That's the best advice. You have to make time, which I know is really hard for attorneys to do. Uh, They work 70, 80 hour weeks, most of us. But if you can find time to sit down and write, that's it. That's the only way you're going to get it done is to push that book out. Surround yourself with loved ones who understand the demands that you have with writing and finishing this book. That's great advice. (laughs) Get a good good support group because you're going to need it just emotionally you're going to need it so thank you so much Tara I really enjoyed talking with you and reading your book I'm Julianne Hill for the ABA Journal and I'm filling in for Lee Rawls and thank you listeners for listening to today's show if you enjoyed it please rate us on your favorite podcasting app